welcome to the Enthusiast Podcast, where I sit down with leading founders, operators, and investors that are trailblazers in their ecosystems, leapfrogging development and creating growth for their economies. We dive into the nitty-gritty of scaling business and investing, showcasing the tremendous success cases beyond Silicon Valley. Hi, this is Pat from the Enthusiast Podcast. You're in for a really special episode with co-founder of FintechOS, Sergio Nigot. FintechOS is a low-code platform enabling larger, older banking institutions and insurance companies to build new digital services and analytics on top of their existing infrastructure. The company has raised close to 90 million to date by leading investors such as Early Bird, Draper Esprit, Endeavor Catalyst, and several others, and is now aggressively expanding across the globe their digital solutions and has amongst their clients companies such as Societe Generale, First Bank, Holden, and Vodafone. It was such a pleasure to sit down with Sergio diving into the scale-up journey of fintech OS, any challenges they had to face along the way, and what more is in store for the company for the near future. Now, without further ado, directly onto the episode with Sergio Nigod, co-founder of fintech OS. And remember, you can follow The Enthusiast wherever you're getting your podcast. Make sure to check out our newsletter on LinkedIn, Substack, or Medium to always stay up to date with the latest episode. Now, directly onto the show. Hi, Sergio. It is such a pleasure having you on the Enthusiast podcast today. Hi, Alex. I don't know who is more enthusiastic about this, but uh, I, I think I am as well. So really happy to join. Absolutely. Really love the wordplay there. And thanks so much for making the time. So right before the holidays and uh, really curious to hear more about your story with FinTech OS and how you started the company and into what it has evolved and kind of your background before building out fintech os so i'm just curious how did you end up in the world of tech entrepreneurship and, and startups at all? on my personal story let let me just phrase it like that i had i had the opportunity to work for some reasonably fast growing companies in a you know in a senior position in the past but they were not like the tech product firms so they were more in the into the realm of private equity investors than of venture capital investors as I figured and I participated in transactions and I bought and sold companies, I realized there is another sector out there, the technology sector, that basically charged much higher multiples for their investments and uh, provided for opportunities for companies to grow much faster, even at times when they are not you know, profitable or EBITDA positive. And, uh, I found that, of course, fascinating. My background in M&A and transactions uh, played a role. The fact that I was, that I'm originally a computer scientist uh, myself, and I did a bit of programming in my early days, played the other part of the role. So I started to seek opportunities in technology or closer and closer to technology to see if there is any opportunity at any given moment to either become an investor or to operate if you want a technology startup. Obviously, that actually brought a number of opportunities ahead of me. And I think this is the, the, the rest was uh, a bit of a serendipity game, and that, which, I, which I must cover because it's about the history of um, FinTech OS. So at some point, I uh, had a small investment and I had a small participation in the board and the, the, in, the, in the strategy. 
of um, this uh, typical software uh, consulting firm. Like software consulting firms, they are all across uh, Eastern Europe. They typically do outsourcing for the programmers' jobs for Western Europe, sometimes for the States. They tend to be specialized because it's not the most inexpensive kind of programming labor. But anyway, so there is this company that I joined at some point uh, in a non-exec position. Uh, the company had uh, about like 50 people, then about 70, then about 100, then about 150, and had one of the two managing partners of the firm had this amazing idea about creating the software that writes software for the kind of applications that we were building for banks and insurance companies. That idea turned into a some sort of practice, like small practice, couple of people that were working on a prototype. But then in a services firm, you don't have the resources to finance that, and you definitely don't have the management focus on that. So between us, there was always this discussion, hey, this thing would really have a chance if we put enough resources behind it, and if it would, but that would take, of course, us having our only focus on that. And it's very difficult to abandon it like a 200 people firm that makes 10 million per year and start from scratch with two people and do nothing else. But as I said, there were two managing partners in the firm. So at some point, uh, Tio, the CEO and uh, the other co-founder of uh, FintechOS, and I remember that day very clearly. It was one of those evenings when we were going back from, from the office to have a chat about the strategy and what we can do over a beer. And I think over the second beer, he said, look, I'm ready. I want to I jump and start from scratch. I'll leave, this, uh, I'll, I'll leave this firm to our other partner. How about you come with me and we start this uh, FinTech OS story and we do it properly and you raise the money, I raise the money. Uh, he does the you know product and we cooperate on the sales and the go to market and uh, we make it big. And it took me a long 20 seconds to say, yeah, sure. <laughs> and then, you know, another 20 seconds, maybe I need to check with my family, but yeah, I need basically to inform them that, you know, there's going to be a shift a bit in my career and I'm going to do this as well. So I think this is, this is how it all started with a dream, in fact, of solving the problems that we had seen in, um, the financial industry, where software was slow to build, difficult to use, convoluted and fragmented. And we thought of, hey, let's create that piece of machinery that builds the software in a way that is open, that is connected, that is embedded, such that even traditional financial entities can launch products that are as easy to use as the fintech products while being, if you want, more structured and having, having more depth, so to speak. Fascinating journey and, and so much to unpack there. I wanted to go a bit deeper into FinTech OS and the product itself and the problem it is, it is really fixing, right? Because you mentioned it already. Um, you're trying, as I would say, to help those legacy financial players to become more tech native, one might say. Right. Usually, I'm more on the the disruptor side, interviewing fintechs that are saying, "Okay, we we gotta disrupt the banks. We we gotta replace them somehow. We're gonna do this better." Why do you want to enable banks to continue to compete in the segment, given that they're just such legacy players and might not even be able to service their customer in the 21st century? Got a lot of questions about that, especially at the beginning when there was no no market around. Uh, I mean, we didn't, we, we had a few clients, you know, like pre-Series A, 
you have a few clients, you have a good case, you showed, you showed the traction, but then you have, and then we had like, uh, I would say, I would call them religious disbelievers uh, because, you, you know, there's, you know, there's people that would say, hey, and they would say, you know, out of conviction, it's anti-Microsoft or something like that. And you, you, you meet those people and you say that I, I, I'm not going to work with Microsoft. That full, full stop. That's dead. That's, that's dead. You don't, you don't do it. It's like, like this, you know, uh, we are not sponsoring um, anything that keeps the system alive. We want only the full disruptors that are uh, going against the system and are capturing the uh, market from them. But we think, you know, there's a there's an old kind of bad joke about those guys that are bank robbers and they get caught and somebody asks them, so why were you robbing banks? And the answer, that's where the money is, right? So you look at the financial industry. The financial industry is where the money is, and it's spending zillions, tons of money in order to upgrade their services and to upgrade their infrastructure. And one way or another, each of us adults are dependent in a way on using traditional financial services while we are using also, if you want, the more challenger kind of financial services as well. Yes, I may have my uh, uh, card from a digital disruptor, but I also have a card. And by the way, that's probably the main card with a traditional player where my deposits are guaranteed by some government, where I'm pretty sure that there is a, there is a well-structured system that has all incentives to keep this thing alive, irrespective of having higher costs for regulatory reasons. And also, the more a disruptor jumps into the space of the, in the realm of uh, the traditional players and disrupts them, the more likely there will be regulator somewhere. And actually, there will be many regulators, one regulator per each market, specifically, that will jump at them and force them to put in place structures, systems, barriers, if you want, that would make them less smooth and will increase their cost base as well on par perhaps with the more traditional players. So what I have seen, in fact, I have seen a full continuum of flavors of digital solutions that have been developed by traditional players and by new players. And I think barrier, if you want, the gap between them is basically shrinking. At the end of the day, there is very little difference between, uh, let's say, a neobank kind of, or a neolender, let's put it like that, launched by some dudes financed by, a, by an accelerator, or a neobank that is launched as a subsidiary of an old bank, or a neobank that is launched by a retailer in order to do buy now, pay later on a large scale on their portfolio. While initially we were focusing, if you want, on some of the existing players because they had the IT infrastructure, they had the clear problems with the legacy software that could not get to market. In time, we realized that, hey, if you have a powerful enough technology that allows you to build products and services and launch and service, you know, products and services, I'm talking about digital financial products and services, basically that's for everybody. And somewhere along the way, about three years ago, there was a famous article by Angela Strange, Anderson Horowitz, saying that every company should be a fintech company. And we found ourselves very much in that statement. Every company could be a fintech company. Now, who is the very likely to be a fintech company? Someone that operates in finance, someone that is a bank is very likely to be a fintech company. 
How about an insurance? How about an NGA? How about a retailer that wants perhaps to finance the purchases, the higher ticket purchases of everybody? How about a telco? When they know that their, their traditional business model is disrupted and they need to evolve out of being a pure telco into having value-added services, and sometimes those value-added services include financial software. So I think we reached the point when we realized that, hey, when we talk about every company will be a fintech company, there is a need for a technology that is open enough, connected enough, embeddable enough, composable and decomposable enough that allows every company to become a fintech company and not in one go, not in one transformation that lasts for five years and then at the end of the five years, you have something that works. No, but in incremental steps that last very short, maybe three, four months, not more, and then you have something to gain because you would have launched a product, a service. You have started to service that product. You have started to onboard customers on that product. And then product by product, service by service, our clients or the clients using similar technology are becoming innovation powerhouses, are able to launch, service, adjust, change, decompose, expand, products in a very business agile way and this is where the where the difference comes this is where the most important difference comes because the large banks i tend to agree with you they are they might not be the most efficient entities on earth they will always say hey but we can build our own we have and I, i've been in one of the top tier technology conferences uh, meetings and they said they were very proud we have 60,000 programmers i was thinking what a waste, what a waste, 60,000 programmers. What do you do with those 60,000 programmers? Because I can, you know, with a, with a fraction of that, you can, and you don't even need programmers. You need the so-called citizen developers. You need the, pro the builders and makers, people that understand the product, understand the user experience better than understand technology. And you need a powerful enough tool that is no code, that is easy to use, that would empower these guys that would enable you know these guys to launch financial products like that and those products might be superior to a, to one product that has been you know built with thousands of programmers over like over a couple of years because it doesn't matter at the end of the day what matters is the customer experience and the ability to adjust to market uh, stimuli so when market tells you hey Maybe this product that you have launched is not the best product. Maybe there is the neighbor has a better one. And maybe this young, just emerging technology has come with a, something new. How fast is it for you to launch another version for a particular target, for a test group, or for the entire market How to, to launch something similar? Hmm? How fast does it take to you? Because you, we all know that once you're needs are served well by a provider, there's very incentive for you to look sideways. Yeah, so it's a bit of a speed game and it's a bit of a horizontal play for the larger institutions that have multiple verticals. Understanding that horizontal play is no longer just, you know, at the level of data aggregation, is at the level of full journeys that have to jump over multiple products in integrated embedded experiences that are now you know part of our usual life people are talking about 
hyper-personalization. People are talking about ambient financial services that are somewhere behind the scene. And I don't even have the, the full awareness that there is a financial service, financial product delivered to me when I click on that button on that retailer's website saying, do you want to pay this later? Yes, thank you. I won't. And there's a bit of checking going there and a bit of yes, yes, tick boxes, yes, yes. But then, you know, there is something that I can use without necessarily, you know, going through all the hassle of, you know, getting a full-fledged loan and all the, you know, um, traditional discussions and frictions that are there. Very exciting. So much to talk about. And I think we have to differentiate, as you were saying, that it's likely that when you're using a fintech or neobank in those markets where there's high levels of financial inclusion, that you will still keep your legacy bank account. It's it's highly likely that, I don't know, the, the penetration of uh, Sparkassen commercial banks in, in Germany is is probably in, in the 80, higher 80%. And there are some people that will always have only a, a Sparkassen commercial bank account. And they might have a fintech bank account, but they're still going to keep their legacy account. But then when we think about the broader context of this, right? Because we often talk about digital transformation when we think about these legacy players. And I'm wondering how far does fintech OS go in in the sense? Because there's it's one thing to become a digital native company and operate in a way a tech business would do versus being able to roll out tech products like how fine is that distinction and how does how far does fintech os really go in terms of enabling these banks to be ready for the digital age also from more this strategic concept on really operating more as a tech company we got asked especially in the early days why don't you start a bank why don't you start an insurance firm because you have the best technology and you could service the customers yourselves realize we looked at ourselves we're not bankers we are not from that space we are technologists and we think that providing a democratic enough technology to everybody allows for better competition in the market servicing more final customers with easier to use products so we see the technology not technology is not a disruptor per se is when a technology is largely adopted by a big number of players in the market or a large number of consumers and the business practice shifts that's when you get a disruption so we are actually very conscious of the fact that technology in itself needs to be used needs to be used to its full potential in order to create that shift now what does this mean this means that for us it's important that not only the top tier players, but also the lower tier players, not only the incumbents, but also existing companies that have millions of customers, think of retailers, think of telco, need to play a role in this market. Not only existing players, but also new players. And we have clients that are launching financial products, lending products, insurance products, mixed products that have lending and insurance, from perhaps very different segments. We have new banks that have launched using our technology, and we have 200 years old banks that are launching to 
you know, um, coming to your Sparkas example, that have launched digital products for the first time for people that have never used digital products in the past, maybe they, their first onboarding on an account was through the digital journeys that we have created. So there is a bit of opening the market out there. There is a bit of expanding the market in depth. There is a lot of expanding the market in creating much better and much more comprehensive products that are targeting the right individuals with the right set of services. And in all that process, technology does also something else. It reduces the friction. It reduces the transaction costs. In classic economy, you define the perfect market where you have infinite supply, infinite demand, and no transaction costs. In the reality of more complex, like financial products, there's always a transaction cost and the time to market for anything. Yeah? The transaction cost is not only when I perform a payment and I get, a, I, I get it commissioned. The transaction cost is when I, I can't really find the best product. So I'm working with inferior products that have friction. It's a cost on my time. It's a cost on my inability to integrate all my financial life and control it with a set of ap applications and so on. All that is transaction cost. And the supply is not infinite. The supply is typically limited to a number of authorized players. So how about we put together a strong enough technology that amplifies that supply for the nearly infinite demand that we are as consumers and small businesses and all the economy? And how about we make sure that the cost, at least in time and also in money, for launching and servicing those financial experiences is decreased by providing an advanced enough technology. And how about, rather than keeping the launching and the building of new financial products and experience to very defined groups of IT people in whatever, financial entities, how about we democratize that as well and we create a product that is easy to use by builders and makers such that, let's say, Aspiring product manager, aspiring product builder in a financial institution, their own small office can come up with a prototype and say, hey, that they, that they took, it took them maybe, I don't know, two days to build and say, hey, how about this journey? How about you try it on? And if you think it's good, how about we scale it enterprise level? And it will take probably two, three months just to integrate and build all that and might make it, you know, full market ready, full market ready. I mean, not, not only from the functionality point of view, which because that, that you can build in a couple of days, but from the, you know, scalability, from the security point of view, from the uh, regulations point of view, if the, because, you know, you may, you may operate in a regulated market. So all that can be done again with a powerful technology. I don't know who said that, but I remember it was something from a, from a, from a science fiction novel, probably saying that um, a strong enough technology is actually undifferentiable from magic. I think our duty, if you want, as technologists that want to enable better lives for people is to create that magic wand as much as we, as much that those magic wands exist that allow builders to build the stuff that they envision without the friction of having to go too deeply into too technical uh, details. Absolutely. And 
I want to talk a bit about the competitive landscape. Oftentimes when you talk about the digital transformation component of, of legacy businesses. We've got these big consultancy firms, we've got Accenture moving in, you've got the digital arms of these consulting firms moving in. So they sell you the digital transformation project from a strategic point of view, but they also build certain products for you and help you to roll those out. Do you consider those players as direct competitors to your business, even though they still earn the majority of, of their money by not really scalable consultancy services? It, we always had some sort of a difficulty in defining who the competition is. And this is a bit philosophical. First of all, is because we have not identified any technology that overlaps with what we do. Maybe you have some no-code out there, but it's very generic. Maybe you have some digital engagement layers, but you can't build products and uh, you know change products with, with those. Maybe you have very strong core systems, but they are opening very narrow vertical for lending and that's all so you don't really you can't really have a strong uh, competition the funny thing is yes every now and then we get asked if we're not competing by any chance with the large consulting firms that are coming with innovative solutions but you see this is we might be competing in a situation where they have not learned that there is a better way for them to deliver their innovation to their clients, which is basically our technology. And it has happened to us that we ended up in a, in a competition against the client with our technology being provided by us or by some partner and the other technology firm seeing it. And after the fact, irrespective of how that first tender ended, we, have, we had discussions about the consulting firm initiating a group of people that would get specialized in fintech OS and would learn how to use it and will learn how to build their own, if you want, practice, fintech OS practice, that would enable their customers to reach you know, success with their products much faster and would enable them, because this is quite an exclusive technology, make more money by having more customers and transforming the industry faster. At the end of the day, the ultimate, the final beneficiary of all this is the consumer, because there will be more products thrown out of the market with lower cost, more competition leads to lower cost and so on. So we are in a position where luckily we can partner pretty much with everyone. We can partner with consulting firms and, you know, we have built consulting firms out there, Deloitte, um, EY, that already have strong practices built around FinTech OS and they do implementation across clients that perhaps would not have contracted directly with a startup. And you have all the you know core banking providers that have built this you know large footprint, heavy to use, quite inflexible machines that keep old financial institutions alive. And we can definitely help their by taking product management, product delivery, um, um, product servicing out of the core and do it a lot more flexible and a lot more, more, more customer friendly in a middleware. We can integrate below super apps and interface apps that are launched by everybody. And we can provide all our business logic of, you know, again, building launching products, okay, creating customer journeys, below that layer in a headless way such that you know typically you know uh, you when 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 you work with someone that has launched already an app you would create all the business logic and all the 
all the journeys behind that interface layer and it will just be exposed to be consumed because obviously uh, from a consumer servicing point of view you don't want to launch seven apps that the the client would get lost in you have launched an app and everything is an add-on to that app and you know feeds from from behind so we are in a way getting into a financial technology infrastructure whether that's nil it's for a new player but even more interesting if you have something already and between eating how hollowing out the core between providing for the interface a headless uh, experience between integrating horizontally with other other software that the firm uses between offering a, a, again an easy interfaceable api based option with an ecosystem hub to connect into third-party databases like regulatory databases telling me who can be credited and who can't or uh, contextual information telling me this person that is willing to get a micro loan now or is willing to take an insurance now where are they located and what kind of activity are are they involved in so all that contextual data, all that personalization data put together. This is the power of FintechOS, the power that you can basically cooperate in an embedded, open, connected way with every other software or every other consulting firm, as long as we're philosophically aligned. It's the benefit for it's for the benefit of the final consumer. Makes all the sense. We've talked a lot about um the product side and uh, the problem you're fixing in the market space and what is really the product market fit of FinTech OS. But um, how has the scale-up journey been like for FinTech OS? I mean, uh, you started out in, in your native Romania, I understand, but now you're very much a global player in the segment. And I'm, I'm wondering how this journey was like leading a small team and uh, now really uh, having a team of more than 400, if I'm not mistaken, that is um, globally distributed. And what are some of those scale-up challenges that you as an entrepreneur has faced in, the, in this context? I'm, I'm smiling because uh, if, you, if you start your business in no man's land, in uh, outside, if, if you want to start something that revolutionizes the technology world for the financial sector and you haven't started in one major financial center you're not new york you're not in london you're not in singapore you're not in hong kong you're not in you know uh, california you're also not in one of the largest economies in the world you're not in brazil you're not in india let alone the us and so on. so you know from the beginning that this can scale only if it's an international product for the international market so you think from the beginning, you don't even if, even focus that much on the domestic market from the beginning. You think of the global challenges and you think of how to accommodate if you want differences across different geographies. And what does this mean for your partnership policies to the extent that markets are different in the way they operate and the way they are regulated and so on. So from the beginning, the horizon is you have to deliver for the world. And, you know, you may be a very small startup, but that's temporarily because deep in your DNA, you're a multinational, you know, a large enough multinational that is going a global firm. Yeah. And I think this is something that we that that we had in mind from the beginning. And it's also the fact that 
well, unfortunately, there is some gray hair here. It's not that we were my 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 Michael founder and I, Tio, and he's an amazing, amazing entrepreneur. We were not on our first entrepreneurial endeavor. We were not, you know, coming with the first pro. So we were not afraid, thinking, hey, we I need to build a 50 persons company or a $10 million company. And we've done that before. We were looking for the big thing. We were looking for something that would change enough the universe. So the ambition was there from the beginning and some clues on how to do this and the focus, the initial focus from, from again, from the beginning on the international market. Yeah? And then you turn around something that looks like a disadvantage into an advantage because, hey, on the other hand, in Romania, we had a pretty good talent pool when, when, we, when, when, we, when we talk about technology, amazing engineers that have been trained over the last 10, 20 years in working on large international products and on large international markets as basically service providers, same as we had delivered with, uh, with our small firm prior to that. In a way, you just turn the table around and say, hey guys, so we have access to some very important resources in this case, and we partner for everything else. So we need to get you know people that have been working in those markets to understand the market for marketing, for for um, sales, for you know generally to go to market. Sometimes for delivery in order to understand and to help with the implementation locally. Sometimes without you, you have uh, you you run into a level where you know just looking for the best worldwide. So you, we we thought you know we we were looking for a chief marketing officer, or chief technology officer, or chief product officer. We did not have a limit to look in a particular market. We ended up with, you know, just take these three or even add the COO job and we hire them in different markets. And it was also to some extent the luck of having done this through the pandemic because, hey, then between we can have this kind of Zoom conversation irrespective from where each of us sits. So at the end of the day, you can have a management meeting, you know, online, irrespective of where the people are, and you can still get everyone under the same roof, luckily, after a while in the pandemic, at least on a quarterly basis, to spend more quality time together and to explore the next steps, understand where we are, what we need to do next, and so on. So, coming back a little bit, I think we were lucky, in a way, to start from a smaller market that, that we had the opportunity to think globally from the beginning. I think we were also lucky that the um, VC industry has started to pay attention to secondary uh, locations in terms of global expansion opportunities. And this is something that we were a part of, if you want, following the footsteps of unicorns that have been built in the region and that attracted already a level of attention and the level of investment. So in a way, I think technology democratizes everything, then democratizes inclu including things like us or other people that have started a business in a garage, in an apartment, in a second, third, fourth tier city somewhere and wants to have access to global capital and to global markets. In a way that I was born and raised with the thing with, uh, you know, the thinking of the American dream, you know, that you go there and you can, if you work hard and if you have some ideas and you contribute, you can, you can grow and be big 
because you have gone there. And that is the American dream. And I think that the technology is democratizing the American dream to be everybody's dream everywhere around the world because there is a global market of technology and there is a global market of financing. And you can tap into those markets easily with the right amount of energy, effort, contact, money, doesn't matter, but you have to, you, you know, things that you have to, to explore. And even if you start, you know, from a non-differentiated background, stand your chance. I think this is, a, this is a bit of an invitation for anyone that might listen to your podcast that might not be already a, a fully established entrepreneur. And there might, they, they might be thinking that, hey, I wish I was born somewhere else. I wish I were born in, in the States. I wish I were born in... I see that a lot of that in my country. I wasn't born where I was. I would have got the best chances, but I, I say no. I think you were born where you were supposed to be born. And you can make out of it whatever you can make out of it using your mind, using your ability to connect with other people and to cooperate with other people into building something that is meaningful for a lot of people. Absolutely. That's so important what you're saying there. And that's also what, um, I mean, what we try to champion here on the, on the podcast, really shedding light on some of these geos and showing the opportunities that are there starting businesses from the ground. But nevertheless, oftentimes they are faced with certain misconceptions. I mean, Technology only democratizes to a certain degree, but it's really difficult to change misconceptions and preconceived notions of certain people. There's always certain misconceptions of countries. And oftentimes when I talk to founders and investors on the show and they come from geographies that are really underappreciated and they have to pitch not only their business, but they also have to pitch their geography, their country. They're saying, I mean, this can be built from... Pakistan. This can be done from Bangladesh, right? And not really anything about it that is holding you back. Did you face some of these challenges when fundraising for FinTech OS that you had to educate investors and then on the customer side, uh, corporate customers saying, I mean, it doesn't matter if we are out of Romania and we are, we are serving customers globally. We, we've got a fantastic talent base. But did you face some of these um, preconceived notions? Yeah, yeah I think, of course. I think it's minor. In a way, you know, we are doing enterprise SaaS. Enterprise SaaS means that every time when you have an established buyer, an established company, they will always ask, you know, so you're a startup. What guarantees me that five years from now you're going to still exist? And I don't have to bear the costs of shifting to another technology simply because you're, you know, out of business as a, as a startup. And this is not a challenge that, you know, you have only if you're from anything but the first tier world. This is a perfectly equal challenge if you have started in the heart of the universe with the best financing possible. The question is still valid. And I think also you, you, you have to be reasonably smart about it. You, you need to understand that, hey, running a global business can't necessarily be done from anywhere. A business that wants to be global has to be local in the large markets. So if we want to go into the UK, if you want to go into the US, if you want to go in France, we have to behave and act as the local firms. We have to have local pe people on the ground that are well respected in their respective communities. And these are people because the, the local communities are far more sophisticated in terms of level of development of the institutions and of the, of the services to, to some extent. Obviously, they are at a different level of sophistication. So you need to not shy away 
from hiring from the very, very first moment, people that are a lot smarter than you and that can establish your presence and that can represent you at the required level in each of the larger markets. Yes, obviously, if I want to stay in secondary city in uh, Eastern Europe, I'd pick that not to, you know, create, because uh, that's you know bad enough from many points of view. Yeah? So, but it, it goes the same way if you're somewhere in Southeast Asia, in South America, in Africa. If you are in a, if you're not, you know, from somewhere, of course, you have to think of the other people money, the other people work, the other people wisdom that you have to put in place in order to make the wheel turn and make this initial concept evolve into something that is a global business. And you can't go with your, you know, you can't replicate yourself as a, as a founder and do that in all the markets and expect to be listened to and understood and expect that you would know what are the intricacies of delivering, launching a product in a different market, not even in a developed market, in a different market. So I think this is something that um, needs to be part of the development scenarios that are built by everyone when they launch something. And indeed, it might be a bit more difficult if you don't start from a major town to project that your business is solving a global problem. But it's a very simple trick to that. I mean, if you start from the beginning with multiple customers, approaching multiple customers, customers in multiple markets, that objection is addressed from day one. Because otherwise, I agree, if you're from a very, very small small market, you may think of, hey, but uh, we are a very, very small market, so maybe these guys that I'm willing to finance are just addressing a very, very small problem that is specific to this market. So I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do, do the investment. I'm not going to listen to them until I see references from another perhaps larger market or perhaps more evolved market. At least you know what you need to do from day one. You need to focus on making sure that you have at least anecdotal evidence in the, in the, in the, in the time when you're trying to build your product market fit that there is a product market fit not only for your whatever home market might be, but there is a product market fit in the markets that you have targeted from day one. And reaching to that product market fit may require some partnerships with people or companies that have been there in that market for quite some time and they understand it better. Absolutely. This is fantastic. So many lessons in there for founders that are starting out in, uh, as you were saying, second tier locations, which is kind of a derogative, condescending maybe term, but it's true. And, and there's certainly certain differences. And I want to talk a little bit about the Romanian tech ecosystem and how it has evolved since you've started Fintech OS and, and overall, and, and what is still missing, right? As you know, at Endeavor, we are very passionate about local ecosystem building. It's part of our thesis. It's a part of how we, we, we create an impact. And um, of course, it's great to have you as, as an Endeavor entrepreneur paying it forward for, for the Romanian ecosystem also. You know, I'm an, I'm an incorrigible optimist. I see the half full glass all the time. So uh, <laughs> for me, it's a... Uh, Probably if you want being being part of a, of a journey and seeing the, the Romanian ecosystem evolving is so fulfilling, so fulfilling. Perhaps it's that that 
part of that, you know, old thing where, you know, a guy walks into a village where nobody wore any shoes, everybody was barefoot. And, you know, you can either see, hey, there's no opportunity to sell shoes or wow, what an opportunity to sell shoes here because nobody wears one. It's, it's a bit of that. I must say that the Romanian ecosystem, and for that matter, any Eastern European ecosystem has evolved quite massively over the last few years. And this has been built around creating the basics of an ecosystem, which is supply and demand on capital, on labor, on advice, on knowledge, and all that. And then once you have created the supply and demand, create a network that binds these people together through common interests and perhaps a passion to build up the market further. And once we have achieved that, of course, it takes a few decades to work together in order to create the first levels of wealth that would then propagate and, you know, it would fuel, if you want, this ecosystem further. We were looking at Endeavor. We were looking at Endeavor for years before Endeavor was looking at Romania as a model of creating functional entrepreneurial ecosystems that allow for businesses to be built and scaled with major success in their home markets and abroad. So um, I was thrilled when someone from Endeavor came in and said, hey, we want to start a Romanian chapter. Who do you think we should have on our board? And who do you think the initial companies that might become Endeavor entrepreneurs would be? So obviously, I contributed to a, a, a little bit to, to that. But I, even if you're not in an Endeavor market yet, or even if you are, if you think of how this ecosystem evolves, you know, basically, the, the, the Romanian situation was like this. There were a bunch of people kind of saying, yeah, it's very difficult to start businesses out of Romania. Yeah, it's very difficult to start businesses out of Romania. And at some point, you know, by sheer numbers, somebody creates a startup that is successful, you know, that attracts the uh, interest of angels and venture capitalists that are not from this ecosystem, but maybe some expat that, you know, has been living locally, or maybe some uh, somebody from the, the diaspora, somebody that has been living in London or New York for a long time worked with these funds and they look back and see an opportunity. So sometimes it's just sparks with one initial success story. If that success story is, is there and reaches maybe getting significant financing, becoming potentially a unicorn, and now we have unicorns distributed with origination from so many countries, then there is an ecosystem of senior employees from these firms that have emerged. In parallel, what has happened in, um, in Central Eastern European ecosystem, you had a number of, if you want, people that have reached the status where they could act as angel investors and started to put more money in a more structured way in startups. And at some point, this gets aggregated by some people who have the ambitions that their startup will be a venture capital fund. So you get GP teams uh, that are launching the first funds that are very small funds initially. But hey, this ecosystem is small, so the small funds will finance small rounds of small firms and cover that 
pre-seed and seed stage, because above the seed stage, any company that has a powerful enough technology has the resources to hire in the in the larger markets and to, and to tap into the capital at the high and into the capital world at a higher level. So I, I think that what has happened here is that you get a strong enough ecosystem that is able to finance, guide, support, and network for the early stages, for the pre-seed, seed, and to some extent already for Series A. And in certain markets, definitely more than that, like you know, Poland, for instance, is a more advanced market from that point of view. But if you look at that, then this is actually how history is being built. The ecosystem today is a lot more vibrant than it were like 10 years ago or even five years ago in the, in, in the case of Romania. So I see a convergence towards participating into a global, into a more global ecosystem. And it's very, very funny and very interesting that Endeavor is taking a very, very convincing approach into creating, providing better access for second level, if you want, ecosystems to not only to maybe the higher level of finance and, the, and, and VCs and so on, but to see the models being done in very similar environments where perhaps the national governance is far from being perfect, the corporate governance for the corporations that established there is far from being perfect, where there is a lot of learning to be done and that learning, hey, if it hasn't happened in your country, but it happened in a very similar country that perhaps is not a larger economy, perhaps is not something where, you know, I think this is something that you have always a chance to learn from by meeting people, by communicating with them. This is very inspiring for us because it allows us to, to look at, like, like in the case of Endeavor, you know, look at what uh, the first countries that have launched the Endeavor ecosystem have achieved in terms of visibility of their entrepreneurial activities on the global stage. And I, I know you're, you're now living in Chile, or, and, and uh, Chile is quite a great example of that. Argentina as well, as you know, they have built so much. And without necessarily having the claim that the market is a developed market as we would understand developed markets. So I think there is a chance for all of us, irrespective of where we come from, if we think that hey, it's not them that have to give it to us. It's up for us to grab it. And I'm talking of opportunities and build the network and bring that network back home and in strengthen that network in a way that is more meaningful and provides for opportunities for everybody. And I think, again, this is an area where looking at Endeavor model and learning from it is something fantastic. I'll be saying that it's not that much about where you were born anymore and it's not any it's perhaps a lot better to have been born in a small community of like-minded people in a less developed country that help each other to grow somewhere than in a let's say small town far from all that vibe in a developed market Absolutely. Now, this is a fantastic plug for Endeavor. And I mean, if you look at Eastern Europe, I mean, you've got these amazing stories, your iPath as, as one, just one example. And of course, uh, FinTech OS lead, leading the way and, and creating those multiplier effects we, we need. And we were inspired just because you mentioned we were inspired and we learned practical things from UiPath people and from the interaction with them and with their investors from day one. 
the fact that there was a nearby uh, unicorn alive that we could, you know, study and see, hey, so um, it has a horn, it has four legs, and it has all these horseshoes and stuff like that. And you can, of course, expanding the metaphor. But the fact that you have access to that kind of resource as a blessing, you may have access in your own market, you may have access to your three or first investors in a different and close by or different but similar market. But it's very important, I think, to to find your models that you can learn from. And at some point, of course, the model is not relevant because you have a different product with a different kind of sales approach with a different go-to-market strategy because it's it's a different size, different target, and so on. So limits. there are limits to how comparable the situation is. But hey, you can learn a lot by talking to successful people. I love this. I mean, there's so many amusing stories out there. I mean, uh, get here, Turkish scale up just acquired gorillas bought out a german startup to me this is just funny you know and you see you can really bet on the underdogs and and play in those leagues from wherever you're coming from so before we close real quick there's uh, three questions i'm asking everyone on the podcast in the fast speed round would you be ready for those uh, three questions i'm at least curious i'm not sure i'm ready <laughs> i'm sure you are so the first one is who's an entrepreneur you admire and why i admire Vignoff. Uh, Salesforce, the way that he or Salesforce has revolutionized the whole CRM world initially, and then the the whole servicing universe is uh, quite fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Second on uh, second one, real quick. Um, what's the best piece of advice you've ever received and would like to pass on to others? As we were trying to raise money from investors i think we got into a pretty bad meeting where we were told to look into what successful companies in this particular case UiPath, have done and again as i was trying to raise money in london i was being sent back, but why don't you talk to your local investors and the ne the nearby investors in Bulgaria and talk to them? So I think the most important advice that I got was, hey, look for models, look for examples, look for partnerships that are close to you, that you can exploit to get to the next level, to get to the next level, to get to the next level. Perfect. Fantastic. And last but not least, three key words that describe a successful business, in your opinion. A lot of times, starting a firm, especially at the very beginning, is not about glamour, is not about success, is not about achievement and glory. I think it's a lot of blood, sweat, and sorrow in building the initial steps of a successful, successful firm. I'd take those as signs of potential future success because the most important thing is as you go and grow through the early stages and it's so painful you should not forget that this is a stage that everybody has been through and everybody has had their struggles into reaching the market so it is part of the glory and it is part of the inspiration to go through that valley of blood sweat and sorrow
Uh, it certainly is. Well, it has been great, Sergio, having you on, on the podcast. Before we close, is there anything else you would like to share with the audience? I think I admire everyone who wants to start a business, who started a business, who's struggling, who wants to achieve something more for themselves and for the others. And I admire even more so that are willing to share their experience and carry forward a civilization that everywhere is evolving and helping, if you want, us, all of us, reaching our next stage in whatever development we are pursuing for ourselves, for our friends, for our ecosystem, and for the larger ecosystem that humankind is. Fully agree, Sergio, it, and it has been a pleasure having you. Uh, thanks again for making the time. Thank you for listening to The Enthusiast Podcast. Make sure to subscribe wherever you're getting your podcasts to always stay up to date with the latest episodes. And if you enjoy the work we are doing, drop us a review or give us a rating. This show is produced by me, Patrick Alex. Also a big shout out to Constanze Ulreich, who is leading our newsletter efforts and much more. Title music by Stock Studio called That Funk Show. <laughs>